audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Today's text comes from Judges chapter 21, uh, verse 25, and it reads this way. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, church. Um, Cody didn't know this, or Mark, whoever picked that song. Uh, So this Sunday a year ago was my last Sunday at Johnson Ferry, uh, the church I came from. And we sang that song, my last Sunday at Johnson Ferry. And now a year later, the same Sunday, we're singing it again. And uh, it's still true. And so really thankful for God's goodness being shown to my family, me, through you. Uh, This last year, it's kind of crazy. I've been here a year. So now you can air all your grievances. Honeymoon's over. Um, So um, no, I'm kidding. Um, Today, I am uh, very giddy um, to start uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. I'm super excited. Um, This is going to take us through 1 Samuel through May, we'll take a break in June and July. We'll come back for 2 Samuel from August to December. So we're going to be in the Samuels a lot this year. And I'm really, really excited about it uh, for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of these stories will sound very familiar to you. Um, some of the stories in 1 and 2 Samuel are stories we grew up with in Sunday school, if you did grow up in the church. And um, hopefully it'll be a fresh time for you to take a look at God's Word and See how all these things get us to Jesus. Um, But today is going to be more of kind of an overview of where we're going to be going for the next year. There's not a specific text. We read Judges 21-25, and I'll explain that in a second, why we did that. There's not a specific text in 1 and 2 Samuel this morning, but rather we're going to take kind of a 30,000-foot view of the two books as a whole, kind of really hone in on some key themes and some key emphases that are brought out in these books. So it may feel a little heavier today on the teaching side, um, because there's going to be a lot of information I give you, but all this information will be really important for us as we trek through uh, this next year. So may the Lord bless us in our time this morning in his word. Um, A good book or a good movie uh, usually has a strong opening line. Uh, One of my favorites Uh, books written. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, season of darkness, spring of hope, winter of despair. That's Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, Star Wars. If you didn't know that, we need to have a conversation later. Uh, That's a disciplinary action, if you don't know that. Uh, Kidding. Uh, The world has changed. I can feel it in the water, and that's Fellowship of the Ring, at least the movie. It's Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Happy, if you know this one, well done. Happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are all unhappy in their own way. It's Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy, which I'm reading right now for the first time, and it's really sad. Um, But a good opening line oftentimes sets the tone for the book or the movie. You know, it captures the attention of the audience and puts them on notice. It builds anticipation in them that something big and grand is about to happen. You know, opening lines in books or movies can sometimes fill us with dread. You know, it was a pleasure to burn. Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury. 
or opening lines can fill us with anticipation. You know, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. Opening lines can be comedic. Uh, This is my favorite book in all the world, though I've never read it. Uh, It's The Princess Bride, the book uh, by William Goldman. I don't know, I haven't seen the movie ever. I know, I'm sorry. I know. Um, But the book is great, all right? But I haven't seen the movie. Um, We can talk about that later. Maybe you want to church discipline me. Um, Opening line to 1 and 2 Samuel is really the closing line of the book of Judges. And it's intended to fill the reader of the scriptures with dismay. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, in the Hebrew scriptures, 1 and 2 Samuel comprised one book, Samuel. And the book of Judges follows right before Samuel. Ruth is placed somewhere else in the Hebrew scriptures to exemplify a godly woman. But Judges flows right into Samuel. And the last line of Judges serves as the backdrop for the opening line of Samuel. And this backdrop is one full of broken commandments and chaos and disorder. You know, the story of the people of God from Genesis to Judges can be described as a slow descent from glory to groaning. You know, in Genesis, beginning with Abram, turned Abraham, God begins to set apart a people for his own possession, a people that he will take delight in, a people that he makes promises to, that he establishes a covenant with. These are significant promises, you know, that all the people of the earth would be blessed through this people, that out of this chosen people, all of the nations would come. They would flock to this people. They'd be a part of this people. This people was to be different in this world. God would set them apart to be his ambassadors, showing to one another and the nations the glory of the God they worshiped. And these set-apart people, they'd experienced many highs and many lows up to this point. For Samuel, they'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, yet they'd been miraculously delivered from that slavery by Moses. You know, as they made their way from Egypt towards the land God was going to give them, the promised land, God miraculously provides food and water for them on their journey. He protects them from enemies and other nations surrounding them as they make their way towards Canaan. Yet despite experiencing all these miracles from the hand, literally directly from the hand of God, they continue to forget him. They would have brief moments of obedience where you think this may be the time they actually get it. And then by the time you begin thinking that, they quickly fall back into forgetfulness choosing the pleasures of this world over the pleasures that come from the hand of their God. But God continues to have mercy on them. He continues to call them his people, continues to be their God. He lavishes them with affection. He calls them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He is their king and they are his people. And he eventually takes them into the promised land and beginning the, book of, the beginning of the book of Joshua, they have just exited 40 years of wandering in the desert, in the wilderness for their own sin. And he drives out the nations living in Canaan in this promised land so that his people can take possession. This, this land flowing with milk and honey, this beautiful, amazing, fruitful land that he's giving them. 
And he warns his people that if they chose not to rid the land of these foreign nations and their foreign gods, that that God's people, his people, would continually fall back into idolatry, into sin. They'd be lured away by these foreign gods. Sure enough, it's exactly what happened. So Yahweh, the formal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh, when his people would run after foreign gods in order to bring them back and bring them back by putting them to the point of despair. They would hit their rock bottom, so to speak. He would allow other nations to come in and take them over so that when they came in and took them over, the people of God would cry out in their desperation and God would save them once again. And he did this through raising up what are called judges to deliver the people. And a judge in the Hebrew Bible was not only an arbiter of the law, that is something a judge did, but he or she, as in the case of Deborah, they were also warriors or conquerors. They were military figures. This judge would come in and overthrow the foreign oppressing nation in Israel and bring the people back to God. Or at least that was the intent, to bring them back to God. But the people of Israel, they fell into a cycle They'd be conquered by a nation. They would cry out to God for deliverance. God would raise up a judge who would provide that deliverance. There would be a brief time of spiritual renewal and spiritual revival. But then the people would forget, and they'd go after foreign gods again, and God would allow another nation to come in, and they'd cry out in desperation. And on and on and on we would go. And there's 12 judges, actually, in this cycle that were raised up to deliver Israel. 12 cycles, if you want to call it that. But by the end of the book, we are in, in the book of Judges, we are in the depths of spiritual apostasy and chaos in the nation of Israel. I mean, if you've read through the book of Judges, the final few chapters in that book are some of the darkest thus far in the Bible, maybe in all of the Bible. With the final line of the book of Judges being what we quoted earlier, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this final ominous line, it communicates three things, three things as we head into Samuel. This line first speaks of the abandonment of Yahweh by his people. And remember, God had set up Israel as his kingdom on the earth. That he, this was a theocracy. He was their king. Yahweh was their king. They were his subjects intended to carry out the will of the king in this world. But they had clearly abandoned his rule and his reign by the end of the book of Judges. Second, this line speaks to the wickedness of the human heart when left to its own devices. You know, back in Genesis 1 with the creation of Adam and Eve, God had intended human beings to be his kings and queens in this world. As vice regents, they were to exercise dominion and rule in this world. But when sin entered the world, you know, rather than being naturally bent towards exercising dominion and rule under the rule of Yahweh, their hearts began to follow their own desires in their own ways. You know, those desires, although we still, ex- we still desire to exercise dominion, that has not changed. But our desires as as to whose dominion we want to exercise have. We wanted to do it our own way, 
according to our own interpretation of right and wrong. We set the terms. We set the rules. We set the laws, not God. That is the natural bent now of the human heart. And the end of Judges is a small demonstration of the depravity of the human heart when it's left to its own ways. And we still see that today in our own lives. But then third, this final line in the book of Judges, it it builds some anticipation of a solution. You know, implicit in this verse is hope. Hope that if Israel did have a king, even if it was a human king under the authority of the divine king, that if they did have a king, then maybe, just maybe, they could flourish again as a people. And we enter into Samuel depressed, wondering at how and when and if God would once again deliver his people. But even in the midst of our depression, we have a small sliver of hope that God's about to do something new in Israel, that a new dawn was about to emerge. And that's where we are here, the outset of our study of First and Second Samuel. It can only go up from here, all right? It can only go up from here, all right? We're starting at the lowest of the lows here. And to help us frame up this 30,000-foot view this morning of First and Second Samuel, I'm going to implore the use of numbers, which is a scary thing because in school, the math classes were the ones that I literally almost failed, all right? But I'm going to use numbers here. I have vivid memories of my Algebra two teacher kicking a garbage can across the room because she was so mad at us as students. Hopefully you haven't experienced that. Miss Welch, she was actually a member of our church, so there you go. Um, and the numbers are these, all right? The numbers are these. One theme, two books, three primary characters, and four purposes, all right? So one theme, I'm going to go through these again. Two books, three primary characters, four purposes, all right? All right, so let's start. One theme, one overarching theme for First and Second Samuel, and it's this. Yahweh is king, and he sovereignly reigns over all the earth. Yahweh is king, and he sovereignly reigns over all the earth. That is the main point of these books. God is king, and the domain of his kingdom is the entire universe. He rules and reigns over it all. We're going to see this theme developed in a lot of places in these coming chapters. But let me just give you a few just to kind of whet your appetite a little bit. You know, even before a king is established in 1 Samuel chapter 8 with Saul, you know, there's acknowledgement of God as king in the prayer of Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about Hannah, this amazing godly woman. She has a prayer of worship and thanksgiving in chapter 2, and she acknowledges God as king and speaks to a coming king who will rule and reign with authority and strength and wisdom he receives from God. You know, there are repeated references throughout these two books to God as the Lord of hosts. That title shows up a lot, the Lord of hosts. Shows that God's reign is over a variety of beings in this physical and spiritual world. Hosts can be used to describe stars or galaxies, but more, it's used to describe angels, the heavenly beings. He is the Lord of the heavenly beings. In 1 Samuel 4 4, 
talks about how God is enthroned on the cherubim. The Lord of hosts is enthroned on the cherubim, which is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll come back to here in just a second, and we'll come back to a lot over the next year. The Lord of hosts, he sits on this ruling throne over these angel armies, ruling and reigning them. Well, we'll be reminded, we could go on and on with examples, we're going to be reminded often, church, over the next year, many, many times, that we do not rule our lives. That we are not kings and queens of our lives. That we do not dictate the terms of right and wrong, of good and evil. That God, as the only king of the universe and the king we worship and subject ourselves to and seek to obey, that he and he alone has complete authority over who we are. That he is the king because he made us. Our role as his people is to bring ourselves into submission to his rule and his reign in this world, to seek to live lives as the people of God in the kingdom of God before seeking to live in any other kingdom in this world. So that's the theme, one theme. Next, two books, all right? It's not rocket science here. Two books, First and Second Samuel, okay? First and Second Samuel. First Samuel tells the story of the final judge, Samuel, that's his name, is, as the kingdom transitions to an earthly king to substitute for those judges. Our hopes for a good king are, are dimmed pretty quickly as we see the first king, King Saul, blow it. He loses the kingdom. But then our hopes are again raised as we see a new king coming, King David who will come and lead his people according to God's ways for his people. And then 2 Samuel literally tells the story of this second king, King David. His triumphs, his failures, which there were many, his redemption of those failures. The reminder through him to us all that it's possible to royally fail, no pun intended, there is a pun there, royally fail, right, and still find God's mercy and grace and repentance available to each of us when we come back to the Lord. You know, the response of David and his sin gives us a blueprint. I think about Psalm 51, right after he commits sin with Bathsheba. It's a blueprint on how our hearts should be postured when we find ourselves in the midst of failure, seeking a second chance. More to come on that in 2 Samuel. One theme, two books, three primary characters, three primary characters. Now, obviously, there's a lot of characters in First and Second Samuel, but there's three primarily that frame up the book. The first character is Samuel, the prophet. Samuel, the prophet. Chapters 1 through 7 basically tell the life of Samuel. It will pop up again. He'll pop up again at numerous times throughout First Samuel. He even is conjured back from the dead in First Samuel 28, which that'll be fun to get to. First Samuel chapter 28. But the first seven chapters are dominated by his life. You know, Samuel is in many ways uh, a near fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. You know, we talked about this before. We talked about prophecy, right? When prophecies in the Old Testament are given, oftentimes there's a near fulfillment, like a fulfillment in the short term, and then there's a far fulfillment, like long term, down the road. This is what the prophecy ultimately led to, this far fulfillment, which oftentimes, most times, finds its fulfillment in Jesus, Right? But prophecy, oftentimes in the Bible, with that near fulfillment, it's, it's fulfilled within a few hundred years of that prophecy. 
And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had prophesied a day when a prophet like him would be raised up among the people. And the writers of 1 and 2 Samuel, they want us to see that this near fulfillment of that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 is fulfilled in Samuel. I mean, there are so many similarities between Samuel and Moses in these two books. Here's a few. Both were raised in places outside their own homes. Samuel's raised in the temple with Eli. Moses is raised in the palace of Pharaoh, right, as a kid. Both were first called by the Lord in places of solitude. If you remember as a kid, 1 Samuel chapter 3, he's about to go to sleep, right? And he hears his name, Samuel, Samuel. He thinks Eli's calling out for him. What did you need? Eli's like, I didn't call for you. He goes back. It happens again. What did you need? I didn't call for you. He goes back. It happens again. What did you need? Eli's like, oh, I think the Lord's trying to talk to him. Um, so it's, you know, that happens. Samuel, Samuel. Also Moses, he's on the mountain, Mount Sinai, tending sheep when God calls him from the burning bush. They both are Samuel, Samuel, Moses, Moses. Even the repetition of names brings a similarity between Samuel and Moses. You know, both were said to be unlike any other prophets that came before them. They're the only two prophets at this point in the Bible that are called faithful. There have been a lot of prophets. They're the only two that are explicitly called faithful in the scriptures up to this point. Both write down regulations from the Lord. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. Samuel, many books that he writes that are alluded to in 1 and 2 Samuel. So many other similarities that put Samuel in a similar category to Moses. He's a big deal. All right, He's a big deal in the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. Tell us of his life. Second primary character, Saul, the incompetent. That's what I call him, the incompetent. Uh, The readers of Samuel, if we've been reading, uh, know from the outset that Saul is not set up for success. And for the reason Saul is chosen, the primary reason he's picked to be king in the first place, the people want a king like all the other nations. Problem number one, all right? God had called them to be distinct from the other nations, yet they wanted a king like the other nations, and the one they find is King Saul. In many ways, we're going to see Saul is more like the nations than the king God desired him to be. Saul's a member of the most spiritually depraved tribe in Israel at this time, the tribe of Benjamin. If you read the end of Judges, most of the atrocities carried out at the end of Judges are from the tribe of Benjamin. You know, the metaphor of shepherd is assigned to kings all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. The first Samuel presents Saul as literally a failure at literal shepherding. He's a, like, he can't even shepherd sheep, all right? He, the first time you find Saul, he lost his dad's donkeys. He doesn't even know where they are. He's like wandering around trying to find him. He spends all day trying to find him. He can't even find him. So the writers are like, he's not a good shepherd. He's like the, all the other nations. They're trying to set this ominous tone towards Saul, even from the outset. But even more ominous when it comes to Saul are the attempts he has to kill anybody who would usurp his power. You know, I think it was Lord Acton, Byron, one of the lords, um, who said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Uh, who was that? Acton, thank you, man. Um, that's why Eric got hired, because he knows these things. Um, power does corrupt. It does corrupt. We know that. We see that. Maybe we've experienced that in our own lives. Power does corrupt. And although this isn't the only thing that corrupted Saul, it did drive him to try and destroy anyone that was a threat to his power. 
You know, after God anoints David in 1 Samuel 16 to be the new king, in the next 15 chapters of the book, Saul tries to kill him 16 times. So more times he's, David is about to be assassinated by Saul than there are chapters left in 1 Samuel. 16 times. Saul was an incompetent king. He was an incompetent king, unfit for the job, and he'd eventually lose the job. We're going to see that in 1 Samuel. And then the third primary character, the one who dominates most of the book of Samuel, is King David, the prototype. Now, I won't spend too much time here for the life of David. is going to be the subject for many of our sermons over the next year. But David was king exemplar of all future kings that would come through Israel and through Judah. All other kings that would come after him were always compared to David. Always. And although he messed up in some pretty major ways, committed some pretty terrible, atrocious acts, particularly in 2 Samuel, God himself calls David a king after his own heart. And then God goes as far to even make a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 that would pave the way for Christ 900 years later. David's the prototype. This is the model for kingship in the nation of Israel. And he is, Christ is the fulfillment of all things David pointed us towards. So one theme, two books, three primary characters, and finally, finally, four purposes. Four purposes to First and Second Samuel. Four major points the book seems to communicate over and over and over again. First, Yahweh is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. If we've read the Bible up to this point, First and Second Samuel, we would see that God has already established himself as possessing these characteristics of covenant-making and covenant-keeping. I mean, he's made covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. And he's going to make one with David, we just talked about a second ago. But it's one thing to simply be a promise-maker. All of us can do that. It's quite another thing to be a promise-keeper. You know, I'm sure that many of us can envision people in our own lives in our own hearts, who've made grand promises and failed to fulfill those promises to us. You know, sometimes the lack of keeping those promises leaves massive scars in our hearts and our minds that take years to process, years to work through, maybe the rest of our lives to work through and process. You know, when we make promises, this is kind of a cool thing about how human beings are wired. You know, when we make promises, we're actually sharing in an act of the Lord. You know, we're reflecting a bit of his character, for he too makes promises. You know, our creator who made us put in us a desire to make promises. That's why we do it. And our inkling to make promises stems from the heart of God, as he makes promises to his people. But unlike us, God always keeps his promises. You know, he never goes back on his word. Many of God's actions in Samuel are rooted in promises he made to his people hundreds of years before. 
He still remembers those. He still fulfills those. He still acts in accordance to those promises. And new promises God makes in these two books, he continues to hold to this day, 2,900 years later. And this should bring us great comfort, church, that the God of promises never goes back on his word. That his word never changes. That things he spoke that are true 3,000 years ago are still true today. That God has bound himself to himself by these promises. And he can never go against himself. For that would be to break a promise, to break his own word. It should bring us great comfort to know that because of Jesus, his promises are always yes towards those who are in Christ Jesus. That you won't wake up one morning to find yourself out of favor with God. But Jesus has secured his favor, God's favor towards you and for you. Because all those promises in him still remain. You know, First and Second Samuel is going to remind us of these promises in many, many ways. And I pray it's a comfort to us. Comfort to us to know that God is always a promise keeper, not just a promise maker. Second purpose, First and Second Samuel. Yahweh desires to be near his people. He desires to be near his people. There's a lot of discussion in these books on the Ark of the Covenant. You know, our, our main exposure to the Ark of the Covenant is from Indiana Jones. Um, and I would venture to say that if we did try to touch the Ark of the Covenant, our, melt is, our faces may melt off. Um, but this physical representation, the Ark of the Covenant, this physical representation of God's presence with his people. And there's also a lot of discussion towards the end of 2 Samuel on building a temple in these books. Again, a physical representation of God dwelling and being near his people. You know, the greatest two servants of God in these books, Samuel and David, the greatest two servants of God in First and Second Samuel, it was said of them that the Lord was with them. He was with them. And over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the life of Hannah, Samuel's mother, and she takes great delight and hope in a God who's near enough to her to hear her when she prays. To hear her even though she does not utter a word, a verbal word, but he's near enough to know the desires of her heart. It's a God who concerns himself with the needs of his people. And again, we see this ultimately in Christ. Emmanuel. God with us, right? A God who desires to be near his people so much that he sent his son to his people. I mean, physically setting himself among them so that when Jesus physically ascended to the Father, he could send back the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, to dwell in his people. First and Second Samuel are precursors of a God who takes great delight in being with and near his people. And so we'll delight in that too throughout our study. Third, Yahweh demands obedience from his people. Demands obedience from his people. 
God is holy. Word shows up over and over and over again. He is holy. He desires his people to be holy as well. Now, first and second Samuel, they're very explicit in what God demands. And he doesn't just demand outward action. He demands inward right motive. Doing things outwardly doesn't constitute always what is pleasing to God, really ever what is pleasing to God. He wants our hearts. He wants our inner dispositions. First and second Samuel reiterate to us that there's much blessing in obedience, but also there's much judgment and legit consequences for disobedience. He is a God of mercy and grace as we're in a sea, but he's also a God of justice and holiness and wrath when his holiness is compromised. Obedience is key in these books. And then fourth, fourth, Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. We're going to see that earthly prophets, priests, and kings are still not the remedy we need for sin and redemption. People in First and Second Samuel, they needed something more. They needed something more permanent. They needed something more pure. They needed something more sufficient than what their earthly leaders could provide. And with all the good Samuel and David and Solomon had in the kingdom, they were still significantly flawed people. Significantly flawed people. They were unable to ultimately meet the people's spiritual needs to deliver them from the bondage of sin, not just bondage of the nations, but the bondage of sin and death and give them new hearts. They couldn't deliver those things. First and second Samuel leaves us with a longing for this, a longing that's ultimately remedied in Christ. You know, we're going to be reminded over and over and over again of the sufficiency of Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ of the purposes of God in Jesus, the greater Samuel, the greater David, the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king, that he is coming, that he has come, and that he will come again. And we're going to continually celebrate this king as we make our way through this story of a promise-making, promise-keeping God who is sufficient to meet all of our needs for deliverance and put a new song in our hearts. I'm excited about it. I hope you're excited about it. I don't mind being the only one excited about it. That's all right. But it's going to be a great study, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing how God changes us through his word as we look at these two great Old Testament books. We only pray for us now, and then we'll respond in worship. Father, I, I thank you for joy and delight in your word. I thank you, Father, that that is a shared joy and delight among this people. I am thankful for so many examples in the Old Testament of godly character, of godly men and women but also examples of many that failed but had the right disposition and response in their failure. We need to learn from that. I need to learn from that. So, Father, I ask you over the next year, 
to remind us that you make and keep your promises, to remind us that you are with and near us, to remind us that you've called us to be obedient and set apart for your glory, to remind us that Christ is coming again, and remind us, O oh God, that you are king. We know these things. The problem is we forget these things. So remind us in our forgetfulness, and we praise you that even in our forgetfulness, your mercy is new every morning, that your faithfulness is truly great, that your love for us is never-ending. And we thank you, Lord, that all these things remain true because of Jesus. We know them to be true. You are faithful to us, for you proved yourself faithful to him, and we are in him. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Teach us this next year. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.